In a recent TV interview, the Greater New York Black Lives Matter president, Hawk Newsom, said this, quote, If this country doesn't give us what we want, then we will burn down this system and replace it. Now, I, I realize that opening up this third episode of the Building Faith podcast on, in our series on racial tension with a quote like this may seem like I'm maybe trying to be intentionally provocative, even unnecessarily provocative. After all, we've obviously witnessed a steady escalation of rioting and looting and even burning things down in major cities around the country. And this is not even to mention the the violence that has ensued in the midst of all the chaos. And people have gotten hurt and have been killed. And people are angry and they've suffered loss. and, And communities are fearful for safety and security. And people are just generally on edge. And so I just want you to know I'm not dropping a quote like this by a Black Lives leader about burning down the system. I'm not dropping a quote like this into this discussion as a means of some kind of manipulative provocation or or some attention-getting device. I'm actually putting this on the table because it's relevant to our discussion in today's episode, and I'm putting it on the table for some thoughtful analysis that we'll try to undertake. If this country doesn't give us what we want, then we will burn down this system and replace it. Well, what do they specifically want? Seems like a reasonable question. And what does this system that may need to be burned down or, or maybe metaphorically uh, you know, deconstructed, if you want to just take away some of the more violent rhetoric, what, what does this system include? What is it comprised of? And then if the system does need to be burned down and replaced, what will it be replaced with? In other words, where is all of this going? Or at least, what what does this prevailing ideology that's underpinning a lot of this, where does it see us going? Where, where does it intend to take us? Well, I'm Richard Goff, and in just a moment, I'll be joined by Shane Kohler, teaching pastor at Faith Community Church in Woodstock, Georgia. And we're going to continue our discussion in this series on racial tension. And of course, we're going to try to bring biblical clarity to these questions and provide some direction for us as believers on how we ought to respond in the midst of this season that we're in. All right, Shane, so we're back together. We're continuing our discussion on this subject of racial tension. And Last time we were together, we sort of dove into some definitions of of terms and things that you'll hear in the discussion that really are reflective of the ideology that is being uh, kind of proposed or presented in in this debate. You want to kind of summarize that a little bit for us? Yeah, we we spend a time a good bit of time helping uh, folks understand that when they hear in the national conversation the word racism that it often is not the Christian definition of racism, which, as we mentioned, is sort of individual animosity towards someone who may be of a different ethnicity or skin color um, or just, you know, uh, uh, minority in, in whatever way. That sort of hatred that is so repugnant to us as, as uh, believers. But uh, that's not what racism is. And we, we spent some time just defining this from some of the 
from some of the works themselves, particularly focusing on Robin D'Angelo's um, White Fragility book. Um, you know, there are, there are others, uh, Andrew Whitehead or Samuel Perry, um, you know, Jonathan um, Hartgrove, different people who are out there saying similar uh, kinds of things. Uh, basically, suggesting that racism is located more in systems and structures than in people. And so our primary task, if we are to take on racism, is in the words of D'Angelo, we have to, quote, labor to dismantle and replace those unjust systems with superior ones, end quote. This all sort of assumes, uh, you know, that we, uh, those who are in majority culture, um, have to sort of advocate for the marginalized because they are so marginalized they can't advocate for themselves and and so the pressure is put on you know uh, those of us who do have majority uh, status you might say or majority privilege to sort of take that on but you know as we were pointing out last time if you once you buy into the the definitions you're pushed in a direction that is fundamentally anti Christian, because you have to understand that this is a whole a whole worldview that isn't just limited to systems uh, that are governmental in nature. These aren't just legislative acts or you know uh, branches of the government or policies or or stuff like that. When when you know someone like D'Angelo talks about this, they're not talking about just just these uh you know few tweaks to society you might say they're really talking about deeply embedded building blocks of of western civilization and of christianity itself uh, robert jones uh has a book out that's called white too long the legacy of white supremacy in american christianity uh, where he uh, basically lays out that Christianity is uh, so infected by this idea of white supremacy that its ideologies, uh, or or you should say its uh, its assumptions, need to be rejected wholesale. So you're using terms like dismantle and reject, and so I, I can't help but think of uh, recent messages you've preached through as you've gone through the Beatitudes. And um, the Sermon on the Mount, I should say, and and the call for us to be salt and light, and how that that is not the same message as dismantling society. It's completely counter to that. Yeah, and and we are, uh, I guess you might say, we we are not called to that. We're called to a, a different mandate. Um, but Christians are being drawn into a crusade yeah. that they have uh, no business being a part of, and in many cases, I'm convinced, don't even realize they are a part of. Right? They're actually, in all sincerity, and I, I really believe this. I think a vast majority of evangelicals who are, you know, posting, uh, you know, with, um, you know, signs, you know, uh, um, solidarity with the protest, even going down and joining protests. I don't really think that they're conscious of the ideologies that are driving these things yeah and my fear is that they're going to wake up one day having gone so far down the road 
that they would be so confused and not able to get their find their way back. Yeah, uh, because they don't. Uh, you know, they're going to be they're going to start sort of imbibing some of the terminology and and um, calling for some of the same conclusions and not knowing what they're what they're founded on. You know, J- Jamar Tisby uh, commented in in the Wall Street Journal actually on um, Robert Jones's uh, book Why Too Long. And he says this, he says, quote, Christianity has cultivated the religious, political, economic, and social superiority of white people despite all efforts, modest though they may have been, to fight these tendencies. If everything that uh, Jones says is true, there remains then a chilling question to address. Is there anything worth salvaging? Mm. End quote. So what he's talking about is Christianity. He's talking about American Christianity and what's termed here as white Christianity. And this is his fundamental question. Is anything within American, or let's just say white Christianity, predominantly white churches, is anything worth salvaging there? Yeah, that's stunning. It's stunning. It's, this is a, uh, a gentleman who is willing, and I, I, I'm not very familiar with Tisby, but my understanding is uh, he does claim to be a Christian. Um, I, I could be wrong on that, but my, uh, 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 what I'm really stunned by is someone openly calling for the absolute rejection of, uh, of the church of Jesus Christ and all of the Holy Spirit-filled believers who are there, imperfect as they may be, and saying there's nothing redeemable in that. Um, that's, that's where this movement is going, whether it's, uh, whether it's coming from the lips of anarchists or now increasingly coming from the lips of even so-called, you know, evangelical leaders in some cases. And I just have to wonder, you know, as, as you hear things like that said, and I've, I've, I've listened to different statements and interviews and whatnot from those that would probably be um, characterized as as woke Christians, yeah. those that are sort of embracing a lot of the the uh, social justice uh, narrative or, or social justice theory um, as a backdrop for their thinking on these matters. But I, I think that what I've seen mostly is um, it's it's explicit, like what you're saying in terms of the the um, the accusations. And the ultimate judgment being rendered against these power structures, these systems that are in place, even in the context of Christianity, white Christianity that's established these these uh, foundations for for the church. Um, but when it comes to what a solution is, there's no explicit solution given. I mean, in other words, there's no there's no defining. Well, first we're going to do this, and then we're going to do that. It's just dismantle, reject. Well, I, I'm just curious what what does that mean? What 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 do you do to this church and that church and that yeah. church? I mean, in other words, and so when they're pressed on that, it just becomes sort of platitudes. It it, it doesn't get to anything specific. Yeah, when D'Angelo says we have to dismantle and replace those unjust systems with superior ones. She never actually tells us what the superior one is. Yeah. Uh, that's a problem. But, but we as Christians, we ought to recognize what is superior. It is the gospel. Yeah. The gospel of Jesus Christ. But this is the very thing 
that we're being told has to be rejected, uh, not in so many terms. No one is saying the gospel, but what they're saying is the gospel as it has been represented in a certain way in majority uh, culture churches. But how do you extract that? In fact, Tisby is saying you don't even try to extract that. It's wholesale rejection. So everything, if you just want to kind of take the tradition that you know you and I stand in, everything going back to Luther, everything going back to Calvin, everything going back to that tradition has got to wholesale be thrown out. Um, because those are many of the things that, that uh, at least the Reformed tradition in America has been founded on. And all of this lines up exactly with where, uh, you know, even non-Christians like D'Angelo, you know, what they call for. You know, she says uh, in um, one of her works, she says, quote, oppression describes a set of policies, practices, traditions, norm, definitions, and explanations which function to systematically exploit one social group to the benefit of another social group. This includes, she says, sexism, racism, classism, and heterosexism are specific forms of oppression. So, I mean, to the extent that the white Christian church has affirmed uh, traditional roles of, of heterosexuality, uh, roles for husbands and wives, all that's got to be rejected now uh, because those are forms of this, of this oppression. Uh, she goes on in another place to say, oppression, quote, oppression involves institutional control, ideological domination, and the imposition of the dominant group's culture on the minoritized group. No individual member of the dominant group has to do anything specific to oppress a member of the minoritized group. So, so you may not have any ill will in your heart, but you are guilty just simply because there is a worldview and an ideology that you embrace that has been imposed on a minority uh, culture group, and, and you're guilty just simply because that's been imposed on them. Now, the way this works out you know, for, for D'Angelo and, and for others who are advocates of critical race theory or critical theory, uh, that the, the two most insidious and, and deterministic of these systems are, are objectivity and individualism. Hmm. Uh, that this, this is the ideologies that they say need to be dismantled. For example, D'Angelo says, quote, briefly, individualism holds that we are each unique and stand apart from others, even those within, other, uh, within our social groups. Objectivity tells us that it's possible to be free of all bias, end quote. So on the basis of her definitions then, she says that we have to, in order to get rid of all this, we have to get rid of the idea of individualism, and we have to get rid of the idea of, of, uh, of you know, um, objectivity. Of course, you know, it begs the question whether or not these particular things, individualism and objectivity, did they begin, say, for example, with the transatlantic slave trade? I mean, were we somehow non-objective before that? In mm-hmm. other words, did, did, the, did the oppression 
was that the was that the catalyst for these things or these things that, that led to the catalyst? Because as far as I know, um, these were relatively um, fixed pieces of Western society long before um, you know oppression, particularly of black minorities in America, began to happen. Evil as it was, you know, um, they weren't necessarily. There's not a direct, direct correlation between these things. But this is what D'Angelo calls for us to renounce. And so we have to renounce um, objectivity, which renounces all claim to know the truth, uh, which undoes our ability to proclaim the truth and to fulfill the Great Commission. Except for the logical incoherence of that, because these are truth statements that they're making and basing their arguments on. Yeah, this, this has been the, the sort of the the curse or the undermining uh, principle for, uh, you know, postmodern relativism yeah. for, for years, but it's just now repackaged in a new form. And people who are out there, you know, chanting down w- with, uh, with racism, as I said, I mean, there, there are many of them, their hearts are sincere. They, they, they cannot stomach the idea of a, of a minority person being treated with 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 the kind of hatred, and then you layer on top of that images that they see from cell phone video where they see someone uh, you know being shot um, or being shot repeatedly or or what appears to be excessive uses of force, and it reinforces the narrative in their mind, but they aren't really cognit they aren't they aren't really cognizant of of where the overall movement is finding its impulse and where it's going and what people are calling for. They hear that they hear terms like systemic racism uh, and oppression and dismantling and all that, but they don't really understand what is sort of fundamentally behind this. And what really burdens me uh, so much is that Christians have imbibed that that sort of ideology or that sort of terminology that's, that's uh, driven by that ideology and have not taken the time to carve out and to clarify a distinctively Christian response yeah. to the crisis that we're in. Yeah. And we have one. That's, the one. that's the wonderful thing and the tragic thing at the same time. We actually have distinctively Christian responses to this that we ought to be uh, sharing which are grounded in the gospel. Yeah. But that's not what, uh, where people are going, unfortunately. And there are even people um, in the Christian community, and I even think uh, you know, close to home here uh, with us, uh, in, t- in terms of our church, I've, I've kind of heard rumblings. I can't confirm anything specific, but sort of um, echoing this idea that you know, the gospel is not enough. That they're that just saying that we need to be about the gospel that that's not enough, and so um, I, I think that you know that's probably an emotional reaction to uh, someone thinking that you're just trying to paper over things and and not deal with difficult issues of oppression and injustice, yeah. but nonetheless to make that kind of statement as a believer. Um, and and not be reflective of what you're actually saying, and to actually say that publicly to people, you know, on on a social media platform or something like that. I mean, that's uh, but, that's, a, that's know, alarming. But to your point, 
you know, they, they're, they're saying it often with the motive that they, they, just, they, they don't want to be looked at as shallow and just paper over, papering over these things, which is commendable. But I'm fearful that it's a little bit naive, yeah. you know, and, and we certainly are not advocates of a superficial preaching of the gospel or a gospel that doesn't call for transformation in the individual, true transformation that Im- involves not only renouncing anything like oppression, but also true transformation that produces compassion and mercy and love of justice and all those other things. We, we love that. But if you, but if you say, I mean, but literally, if you, if you take to heart um, the God, that something, some, some semblance of, a, of an idea that the gospel is not enough, then you really don't understand the gospel. Right. right. There, there are a lot of people that would uh, claim to be Christians that would say, I, you know, I, I prayed a prayer at some point, or I've gone to church all my life, or whatever. They have some identification with some notion of Christianity, but the true gospel is a, a transforming gospel. It takes someone who was dead and it makes them alive, who is in darkness and blind, and brings them into the kingdom of His light and opens their eyes to see. I mean, it's it's transformative fundamentally in its essence in terms of the work that it does in the life of a person right and, so, it, and it calls out their sin yeah. i mean it calls sin what it is and so it is enough if we're if we're appropriately preaching it right but to follow in the steps of the um you know uh, anarchist who are sometimes leading or the moral relativist or the postmodern relativist however you want to to follow in their footsteps down a pathway trying to deal with the ills of society is not the pathway that Christians need to go down. Yeah. Because we, we've got to distinguish our voice from those voices, those, those ideologies which are, are markedly, um, um, I don't know how to say it, but are, they're atheistic. Yeah. They don't begin with a, a, um, a perspective of, of God. And it comes out in so many of their views. I mean, even, you know, we've, we talked about the rejection of, of objectivity, but even the whole idea of individualism, you know, this individualism that, uh, you know, that the, well, let me say it this way, the kind of individualism that convinces us that, um, you know, we are, ought to be self-sufficient and uh, self-made people and all that stuff, sort of prideful individualism, we do reject that. Yeah. But in terms of, of uh you know uh, culpability yeah. and where responsibility lies and how we'll stand before God in judgment we do affirm that level of individualism and the bible's very clear on that that we will answer for our own sins and and not for the sins of of others before we get there though i i want to you know we i want to talk about some verses that that discuss you know collectivism and individualism and of Let's just call it a very Christian way. I just want to stop for a moment and and make a note, uh, sort of a footnote here, in light of those like D'Angelo, Robert Jones, and others, to just make something very clear, that the scripture doesn't fundamentally condemn uh, majority uh, cultures or power structures, uh, you know, for for uh, D'Angelo, racism is 
uh, is essentially embedded in structures of power and their 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 uh, evil or their wickets because they are powerful. It's all about defining the marginalized and the powerful. But the scripture never fundamentally condemns that. As a matter of fact, it affirms uh, it affirms power in a couple of different places. You know, even back in the law in Exodus uh, chapter 22, verse 28, and I'll read here, it says, uh, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. That's an affirming stance in terms of those who are in power, uh, you know, in that situation, just limiting it to rulers, but that's often the way power is expressed, right? And then you go to a book like Proverbs, uh, over in Proverbs 24, a moment to flip over there, Proverbs 24, verse 21, we're warned here, my son, fear the Lord and the king, and do not join with those who do otherwise. Mm. So, you know, the scripture's repeatedly giving us this affirmation uh, as relates to people in power that we're to have appropriate amount of respect, even fear for them, and that's not undue. And you get over to the New Testament, and of course, nothing has changed. You know, Paul's telling the uh, believers in, um, in Crete, when he's writing to Titus, remind them, chapter 3, verse 1, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, when you're talking about the gospel, that's the gospel. That's the way the gospel works itself out. It is calling people to repentance, but it's also the kind of conduct that we have in society. And one of the things that the gospel is calling for is a certain recognition of the providence of God in establishing authorities and rulers and even, we might say, power structures and how we respond to those power structures. And Paul, when he's writing to the believers in Crete, he's not writing to majority, a majority group here. The Christians were oppressed. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, the, 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 I can already hear kind of a response. Well, it's easy for you to, you know, endorse and advocate for submission to authorities. I mean, here you are, you're, you're in the majority, you're part of the power structure that's been in place here for so long. And so, of course, you're going to advocate for that. But but as you said, um, if you really look at the context of these passages, it's a call for believers to submit to the existing power structures as marginalized people, as yes. oppressed people. This is this is Paul, a, a marginalized Jew, writing to uh, Cretes, who, by the way, um, were not well thought of. Uh, in fact, Paul even quotes there in Titus. One of the common sayings about Cretans, they're always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Yeah. In chapter one, verse twelve. So I mean, here that's in our common parlance. You call somebody a Cretan. <laughs> that's right. That's like a you know, it's a pejorative, you know, moniker. <laughs> Certainly, you know, uh in that time frame, they weren't they weren't uh well, let's just say they were a marginalized group of people, oppressed and looked down on. Yeah. And yet Paul doesn't 
tell them, well, the gospel, the gospel then tells you to overthrow the power structures. That's not at all what he says. What he says is that they're to be perfectly courteous to their occupying power, which was the Romans, and to their governors, and they ought to speak evil of no one, do no quarreling, and be gentle. So, you know, we, we're, just, we're just hitting a few verses as it relates to this issue, but we have to, again, define our, our Christian message here and, and, and talk about how we are distinct from whatever else is out there. And while we find racial prejudice to be uh, a, a blight on society wherever it rears its ugly head, and, and while we need to think about why there are so many incarcerated uh, minorities, and while we need to think about you know, um, whether or not there is uh, um, undue um, you know, um, uh, violence in policing, we need to think about those things. Those are all legitimate. We cannot think about them in an unchristian way. Yeah, I we, think that's such an important point to make, and I think, and I, and I, I just want to say out loud, and in, in case someone's hearing this and and hearing it from the vantage point of of us trying to take some kind of side, other than just the side of Scripture and what God's Word teaches, but recognizing that at any given point in time, depending upon circumstances. Any one of us could be marginalized, could be oppressed, could find ourselves under duress or persecution. I mean, that's just the point is, is that there's there's universal transcendent truth that would guide us in how we respond in those those circumstances, regardless of what grouping or social grouping or what our skin color is or any of these other factors. That's that's good. I mean, and I I feel like there's there's uh, I don't know whether to call it a middle ground, but there's a pathway that really needs to be mapped out by Christians right now, uh, by true believers, by the church. That um, you know certainly is not the alt right, and and it's it's not the um, you know the. A popular social justice narrative. Let me just call it that. It's neither of those, but it's coming along to recognize the the true suffering of of certain um, marginalized people and appropriate uh, kind of compassion and wanting to come alongside those people, but not with the solutions and the answers. It goes right back to where you started, you know, earlier with our podcast. These groups talk about dismantling, mm-hmm. but they really don't divulge what they want to replace it with. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't do that. We, we're not for utter dismantling of society and utter dismantling of the fundamental building blocks of, of, of the church. We're for affirming objective truth. We're for affirming individual responsibility. We're for affirming power structures, while at the same time recognizing the fallenness of the world that we live in, recognizing the need for compassion, recognizing that sinful prejudice and, and uh, you know, favoritism and all those things, they do exist. And, and to the extent that we can come alongside those who are suffering from that, we need to, but not with the answers of, of um, critical 
race theory or critical theory in general? Well, in, in terms of also this this need for us to um, have compassion for those who are oppressed or marginalized in some way, um, or or who are the objects of some type of partiality or prejudice, um, I, I can't help but wrestle in my own mind with the limits of my own compassion in terms of how I actually deploy that or how I actually exhibit that. I, I think that if that if if I try to spread that too far and too wide, it it's not real compassion. It's almost it's almost a perfunctory sort of make me feel good about saying I'm being compassionate. But but as I think about my own just day to day walk and life and and my own thoughts and my own interactions with people, whether they are having a great day or whether they're oppressed in some way. Um, the way that I demonstrate compassion is, and, and, and my bandwidth to actually do that in a meaningful and substantive and non-self-serving kind of way, has limits. I, I can't. I can't legitimately spread compassion far and wide, just in recognition that there are people of you know, an ethnic minority group that are oppressed. I mean, I don't know how to do that is what I'm saying. Well, it's a great point. And, and, and certainly from an individual perspective, that's true. But uh, we recognize that our best, our best um, apparatus to do that is the body of Christ. Yeah. I mean, I can't do it individually, but as I link arms yes. with those who do identify with Christ and come together in a local congregation, we can go further and reach you know, our arms around wider than we could individually. And right. so, there's hope through the church, but if we dismantle the church and undermine the church, yeah. the very thing that is the real hope of society, then we're undoing the, you know, the, the, you know, we're undoing the foundation that could really have positive impact. Uh, now, I know churches are themselves sometimes unstable, unsound, uh, and infected by sin and by sinful leadership. But uh, that has always been the battle in the church from the very beginning. And uh, faithful Christians through the years haven't therefore written off the church, but they've rolled up their sleeves. They've gotten deep into the scriptures, understanding what God uh, says, and gotten busy reforming the church yeah. and bringing it back to a place of health so that it can do what it needs to do. Yeah. Well, I, I think our time has gotten away from us. Uh, there's uh, certainly a lot of other things that we need to address, and we probably need to come back and and kind of talk about this individualism and collectivism on a on another podcast, but uh, I know that we're um, repressed now. So next time, then you, we, we're going to go in that direction. We're gonna we're gonna pick up this issue of individual versus corporate culpability, uh, individual versus corporate uh, confession, or yeah. or those kinds of things. Yes, and 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 we'll try to get uh, specifically into some Old Testament scriptures that. Are commonly, uh, you know, talked about particularly within uh, evangelical circles and the social justice movement uh, that are uh, used 
to try to overlay on top of some of these ideas of collectivism and um, and just want to understand you know what the Bible really says about that collectivism as it relates to culpability and and guilt and collectivism as it relates to you know what our responsibilities are in society okay well we'll look forward to that and I just want to remind everyone that uh, we said at the outset that um, this is a this is a complex issue um, there's a lot of different angles to it and there's also no shortage of potential minefields and opportunities for anything and everything we say to be misinterpreted or misconstrued or misunderstood so just be patient with us and and uh, and and we'll continue to kind of walk through this and know that our objective uh, first and foremost is to point people to the scriptures and to the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ and for us to be working out our salvation with fear and trembling in such a way that we're helping people walk faithfully with the Lord themselves. And so we'll continue to press forward, but hopefully with that aim, though imperfectly, and uh, we'll look forward to being together again soon. Great. Thanks, Richard.